what does Joe do? All right, guys, it's time to pull out the big guns. Corvette ad. Vroom, vroom. Consumer Choice Radio. We are back on the air here on the Big Talker 1067 FM every single Saturday at 10 a.m. I'm one of your hosts, Yael Ososki, this time broadcasting to you from Amsterdam in the Netherlands, the low country here in the European Union. And on the line, as always, we have my colleague David Clement, who's checking in and clocking in from Toronto, Ontario this morning. David, sir, welcome to the program. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, another exciting week. Two good interviews on the docket. Uh, some some interesting discussions to be had. Before we get into that, I don't know if you saw Joe Biden's most recent political advertisement, but he may have won over a lot of votes with his new Corvette ad, where he's talking. What? <laughs> he's talking. I'm a sucker for Corvettes. And so when I saw this, he just, Joe Biden, his hair, with left of it blowing in the wind he's in this 50s corvette and then he it's all good and then he starts talking about how there's going to be an electric corvette and i was like oh man joe wait is this a real ad yeah you're not kidding me here this is not e-bombs world no 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 it's a, it's a real video it's him talking about american manufacturing and jobs and things like that which is kind of par for the course for presidential politics and then uh yeah he's in this old Corvette, and he just looks like a total boss driving this thing around. Um, and then he talks about bringing American manufacturing back, which is, nah, I mean, come on. But um, it looks like he's going for the boomer car enthusiast vote um, with the Corvette ad. Oh, my God. Okay, I see the video now. This is It's almost like, and I think uh, you might be right that there are some other people who will be convinced, but I think it's going to be those who watch comedians and cars getting coffee. <laughs> this <laughs> yeah. is what it looks like. It looks like Jerry Seinfeld is, is helping him rev the motor in the front there, and he's got his, his nice little tight polo on. Can you imagine being in the war room and being like, okay, our campaign strategy... Hey, I got an idea. Yeah, our campaign strategy so far has been do nothing and just let Trump implode. He's coming off the heels of what has been the worst interview he's ever done. Um, what does Joe do? All right, guys, it's time to pull out the big guns. Corvette ad. Vroom, vroom. I got to say, this is a good uh, good way for, for consumer branding as well. You know, talk about General Motors a bit. Talk about good old muscle cars. I think we're so tired of politics. Everyone is. Um, even on your own Instagram feed or you know, it doesn't matter what social media you're on. Everything is politics, politics, politics. But to see uh, an old uh, statesman uh, rev up his Corvette, yeah, I, I can imagine that would uh, perhaps turn some people on to his message. Yeah. Um, if there is a message in that, I don't know. Depends on what you think. I think, I'm, I mean, it's, you could, you could have, minus the electric car part, you could have replaced that ad with any <laughs> Republican being like, yeah, we're going to bring back the jobs. And it would have been the same ad. I think it was just particularly cool to see. We haven't really seen much of Joe lately. So to see him do anything was, was, I guess, uh, a relief. Yeah. Well, it's good to know they, they, they plugged him back in and, you know, he's able to get out and about. 
Um, but speaking of those cars, electric cars, by the way, so here in Amsterdam, um, you know, this is a much more uh, urbanistic place. There's a lot more bikes and things. One thing that I've seen is, you know, these smart cars? Yeah, um, you know, the, these larger, the little ones, so the little baby cars. Imagine, imagine a smart car, but half of that size, fully electric that people just plug up outside. Is it one-seater? People are riding around in here. It's a, it's like a one, one and a half seater. I think you don't have much space. It's almost like a golf cart, but even smaller than that. I mean, that's that's interesting. Whenever I think so, I mean, some of those cars caught on here in Canada for a little bit, but then as soon as it snows, you're done because you just the car is too small. It's too light. Um, Unless you put a big snow plow on the front, right? <laughs> yeah. Even, even then they don't have enough muscle because they're electric. They can't, they can't actually, they don't have enough torque to get through there. Or need more torque. Don't worry. Uncle Joe is here with his Corvette. He'll help push it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, it's been interesting to see, um, you know, for, for some of the listeners to know, we had a, a nice little retreat amongst our uh, consumer choice center colleagues based in Europe. Unfortunately, according to the rules, um, because of the pandemic and the Carol Baskins virus, David was not able to join, uh, which sucked. David, we missed you a lot. Thank you. And uh, hopefully we can we can open up some things and maybe do a, a nice little retreat and push for consumer choice in your backyard. Who yes, knows? that would be ideal. Yeah, unfortunately, if uh, if I, ha- I would have been able to get to Amsterdam, but upon returning home, I would have been required to uh, to quarantine for two weeks. And uh, that is just not ideal given the circumstances. And if you live with somebody else, that's even worse. So unfortunately couldn't make it, but um, we will we will get together at another time. So looking forward to seeing the crew and, and uh, maybe having a couple beers. There we go. And uh, if ever you do find yourself in self-quarantine, we've got the content just for you coming up. So we've got two interviews. Um, first, we're going to play uh, Brad Palumbo, uh, so he is a reporter, a journalist, uh, writer, someone that you might have seen if you pay attention to any DC material. He's been very, very sharp. Uh, he's over there at Fee and part of Young Voices. So we have a great interview with him. And then we have an interview with Ashley Baker, who is uh, the director of public policy at, a com- at the Committee for Justice, talking all things antitrust and this brand new alliance. Uh, I, think, uh, I think it's going to be a good nugget of information for the audience, David. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, two people who are very much in the mix every day, um, very on the kind of professional side of commentary and analysis. So two great guests, uh, two friends of the show. And uh, yeah, we will uh, we'll get Jamie to run that first interview with Brad. Jamie, run the clip. Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We are very delighted to be speaking with Brad Palumbo. Brad is a fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education and a senior contributor for Young Voices. You can find all of his work over on Twitter, which we'll link to in our show notes, and also his Substack, bradleypalumbo.substack.com. We'll get that linked. Uh, Brad, thanks so much for taking the time to come on Consumer Choice Radio. Thanks for having me. So uh, you're someone who I think anyone who's in the uh, political Twitter sphere has definitely seen. Uh, you are someone who writes a good amount. So uh, your voice is found in, in many different outlets. And uh, you've been a very, very, very busy writer here the last couple of years. Uh, if you were to just give a little bit of perspective to our listeners, you know, what is, has kind of been your journey 
as someone who is writing professionally, you know, who has been able to uh, now become essentially a very well-known political writer? How has been your journey uh, sort of over the last couple of years? Wow. Well, um, you know, rewind five years and I was uh, at, at college, on my college campus writing for the student newspaper. Uh, and I just uh, walked into the recruitment meeting and they were like, do you want to do news or opinion? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I'll do opinion. That sounds fun. Uh, now, fast forward five years later and I do that for a living. Uh, opinion based column writing, editing and journalism uh, from a per clear perspective. So that's definitely how I got into it. And I, I came to kind of relish the, the whole battle of ideas framework. And I thought that I had an interesting perspective to offer as somebody who doesn't fit into a lot of easy boxes. Um, and apparently enough listeners agree, agreed uh, that I've been able to do it for several years now. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, I think that's a, a true vote of confidence in your skills and abilities when you have like a, an audience that actually supports you, finds you, and is able to kind of give credence to your voice everywhere you go. Yeah, I mean, uh, I have to admit, I don't, I didn't know what a Substack was, so I feel, <laughs> I feel extremely old. Uh, but it's a cool concept. You're not old, David. Are... You're just late. You're just late to the game, son. Yeah, I'm just disconnected. Um, but it's cool that you that like you have people who regularly want to hear um, what you have to say. And on that note, what are some of like what I mean? There's so much going on, whether it's Portland or Trump or Joe Biden or, mm -hmm. or the Dems or I mean everything under the sun. I follow you on Twitter, and so obviously I can see your battling it out every day but what's what are some of the the big topics for you these days and what's uh what are you passionate about in terms of what you're the, any topics you're writing about so i have maybe two main baskets of content that i cover um and one is maybe less relevant right now i started out especially i write a lot about uh the balance between lgbt rights and religious liberty right i come at kind of a unique perspective from a gay person with socially moderate libertarian views but also someone who skews conservative and believes in religious liberty. So I've done a lot of work on those sorts of things over the years. But then my other thing has always been economics. I studied economics in college. I work now as a fellow at an economic think tank. Uh, and so I'm constantly writing about uh, government waste, tax policy, spending, uh, trade, all sorts of things where uh, the economic ramifications of government policy are, are at stake and right now that's been the biggest thing because we're we're living through real time probably the biggest uh natural experiment in big government interventionism that we've seen in modern american history right we're going to run a minimum four trillion dollar deficit this year almost almost triple what we did at the peak of the 2008 financial crisis between the cares act and the new legislation being considered now congress has responded to covid 19 by launching a unprecedented intervention into the economy, really in modern history. You'd have to go back to the New Deal to find something this per pervasive and sweeping. Uh, so there's a lot to unpack there. And that's what I've been spending the last couple months uh, doing. I think one thing that you've been doing, Brad, is I would actually give you a bit more credit is, you know, you might uh, style yourself more of an opinion writer, but you do bring a lot of news uh, to the table and uh, a lot of things that people would not otherwise know, which I think uh, speaks to a very good columnist or a good writer. And I know that you've been writing a lot about sort of the ideological 
uh, tangle that's happening with a lot of the coronavirus relief, you know, if you could like just kind of draw out the camps for us, you know, what are the different opinions? Because it's, it's hard to get a measure of it nowadays. It seems as if there's kind of a one government um, sort of method. We, we know we want to spend whatever, $2 trillion. Uh, we just don't know if it's going to go to the teachers unions or if it's going to go to, you know, whatever big business. What are the kind of the ideological, um, I guess, arguments right now around these relief bills? I would say there's probably four camps. Um, there's a camp on the left, right, your progressive Democrats, who basically believe that government spending is unlimited. And they believe that the printing press, you just print however much, deficits don't matter, and they want to just spend as much as possible. And they're comfortable with having basically people take over in this crisis, the government take over the entire economy, just about. Then you have kind of the establishment Democrats, the Nancy Pelosi's and the Chuck Schumer's. They're certainly not that far, but they really are extremely Keynesian in that they believe uh, running up massive $5 trillion deficits right now would be fine. Uh, they're not going to do that every single year, but they don't really care. They're okay with massive intervention and stimulus, uh, but they have ideas about where it should go. And that's specifically targeted to uh, ostensibly working people, but also kind of the well-connected interests that have blended in nicely with the Democrat establishment. On the other hand, on the right, you have basically two factions. One is what I would call big government Republican establishments. So Mitch McConnell is fine with spending trillions. He just has different ideas for how it should be spent. Uh, and, and he maybe wants to spend one trillion instead of three trillion. Uh, so that, that's kind of the sad reality is that the establishment of the Republican party in Congress is just as fine with big government interventions. They just want to see them go to tax cuts instead of welfare spending. Um, not that tax cuts are big, I mean, but they're fine with big deficits and they don't really care how we get there. They're fine with massive loans and interventions into the economy, as long as it also includes things that the Chamber of Commerce wants on their wish list. Then on the, uh, the other faction, you do have people like Ted Cruz and Rand Paul who literally say, heck no, we can't keep doing this. And they truly do believe in small government, fiscal conservatism, and they're rallying against this stuff, uh, talking about the long-term consequences of creating a welfare system that pays 70% of the unemployed more to stay on benefits than it does for them to go back to work and running up trillions in debt uh, and accelerating the coming budget crises in uh, social security, Medicare, all that, uh, and just sticking the tab to future generations. So they're a minority, though, that small group, but that's where I would count myself, and that's where a lot of my work is focused during COVID-19. The last article, so, Washington Examiner, July 28, we'll link to this as well, new GOP coronavirus bill is an expensive mess with a few bright spots. Yep. So I got a question on, on, on that breakdown. So a lot of people, um, a lot of people in the Yang gang, have said that now's the time we've got to roll into basic income, that, that this is evidence that it works. And I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm agnostic when it comes to, to UBI, um, but what's your take on whether or not this shows the efficacy of UBI? Have you, have you dug into that at all? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I have to give you two different answers. One is like a philosophical answer and one is a practical answer. Philosophically, I mean, Milton Friedman supported the idea of a UBI if it replaces all welfare and all this inefficiency. I'm okay with that in concept because what we have seen is, I mean, 
the unemployment expansion going through these state uh, under the CARES Act and the COVID-19 Congress response has lost more money to fraud than it did all of uh, just from this expansion in the last few months than it did funding the entire program in 2019. So it's already lost $26 billion in fraud. Uh, so I, I'm actually amenable to this idea that we're, gonna, we're going to have a universal basic income that will abolish all this uh, welfare state bureaucracy and incompetence, and also remove the work disincentive because UBI, you get it if you work or not, whereas stuff like the massive unemployment benefits pay people not to work. So I guess conceptually, I'd be down to kind of wax poetic with the Yang gang about that. But the problem is that it's just, in reality, any UBI would be on top of everything, right? Practically speaking, there's no viable path to add a UBI right now in, in terms of eliminating the existing entitlement programs. And on top of everything, it would just be a disaster. The last thing we need is an expensive new entitlement program. Uh, so I think it's an interesting intellectual experiment, but it's not really a, a serious practical solution anytime soon. Yeah, and uh, a, a kind of funny follow-up just because I know going from online sensations with the Yang Gang to a funny uh, engagement that I saw you were going back and forth with, what was, what were your, what was your back and forth on tanks? Because I saw you got a, a lot of heat about the, the question of should people be allowed to own tanks? Right. I mean, so it, this is just interesting. I'm very libertarian leaning, uh, but ultimately I'm not like a pure libertarian. Uh, so people who are pure libertarians, uh, I'm friendly with them, but we like to rib each other. And one thing that they've been all ribbing me on online, which 97% of the American public would agree with me, but libertarian Twitter is its nice little bubble. Uh, so it's, I said that I don't believe in, I'm very pro second amendment, right? I don't support basically any of the gun control that Democrats support. I support some uh, semi-automatic weapons, AR-15s, concealed carry, all that stuff, uh, because I think the facts justify it. But this question of private tank ownership, uh, to me, seems really extreme. Uh, and Joe Jorgensen, the nominee for the Libertarian Party's nominee for president, has said she thinks private civilians should be able to own tanks. And I view that as an example of the kind of extremism that makes the LP unserious, right? Because Everyone knows you have to draw the line somewhere. She says things like, citizens should be able to have whatever the government has. I don't agree with that. And I'm only, to be clear, I'm only speaking for myself on this. My view here doesn't represent any of my employers. Um, but I think that goes too far, right? You couldn't let Bill Gates build a nuclear weapon, right? Like, we don't want private citizens to have access to super lethal military technology. So you have to draw the line somewhere. And for me, tanks with functioning artillery systems are beyond that line maybe that makes me a statist a communist <laughs> i don't know but that's my hot take yeah it was it, i mean i've never seen something so benign pardon the pun blow up on twitter yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. well it was kind uh, of a joke it was kind yes. of a meme but i think these people actually do believe it which is funny but also <laughs> a little extreme
And I yeah. think if Bill Gates had one, it would just have a huge vaccine on top, and it was just vaccinating. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, one thing, Brad, that you know, you've uh, written about a little bit on your Substack, and again, if people, our uh, listeners want to follow you on Twitter, it is Brad underscore Palumbo. We'll link to that in all of our show notes and the rest. Uh, one thing you've written a little bit about in Substack, and I, I see here you also have an article in the National Review. I mean, you've talked about a lot of the reforms that are being discussed, um, but one thing that you're very... <clears throat> woke to, pardon the pun, is this kind of new journalism that we're experiencing in, in 2020. Um, you've written about these kind of illiberal uh, outlets that you know might be shunning particular writers, and it sucks that we have to talk about this like it's some huge HR thing that's blown up to, to society, but there's been a lot of things with the New York Times or with Andrew Sullivan leaving. Um, what is your kind of take on what's happening in and really in the field of journalism and uh, being able to accept all these different ideas of certain writers? Well, what I can tell you is essentially anybody who's right of center and isn't extremely milquetoast and moderate is unwelcome at almost any mainstream journalism institute in any sort of role where they would be voicing those opinions. I mean, I know so many talented conservative journalists who have no shot of being employed at the New York Times or the Washington Post ever. I would count myself among it, among that group, because we would be canceled by a Twitter mob day one for some unwoke thing we said uh, or had written once. And the spineless people that run these organizations that used to believe in free speech, uh, not in the legal sense, in the cultural sense, uh, they used to believe in open debate. Um, and then now they in plurality and different ideas. And now they really don't. I mean, we talk about the New York Times and it seems almost like a journalism bubble, right? It is really sad that they chased their head op-ed editor out of the New York Times because he published an op-ed that I disagreed with, by the way, uh, by Senator Tom Cotton advocating a mainstream opinion held by the majority of the public and even like 40% of black people actually, uh, that we should send in federal troops to quell riots, right? And they fired him for that. And same thing with they just pushed Barry Weiss out, who's not even a conservative or libertarian. She's a moderate liberal with some unwoke opinions. But it's not just this kind of thing that's happening to these few elite figures. I mean, a new poll from the Cato Institute out last week showed that everyone, even liberal Americans, a majority of liberal Americans feel like they have to self-censor themselves or they will receive backlash for their views in public and at work, right? And so it showed that um, the exact numbers escaped me at the moment, but it showed like shockingly high numbers of liberals and also some Republicans thought that people should be fired for supporting Donald Trump or supporting Joe Biden, right? There's this open hostility in our, in our culture. And we, we're blessed in America to have extremely strong legal protections for free speech and government censorship first and foremost is the biggest evil we've got to fight against but you could have no government censorship and still not really have a free and open society. George Orwell wrote about this where the, the, the other threat is this illiberalism from citizen to citizen that can create a chilling culture that's hostile to open debate. And that's what we're struggling with uh, during this moment. Yeah, we had on uh, Fleming Rose a couple of uh, weeks ago. He's the Danish journalist who published the Mohammed cartoons in Denmark. And uh, he wrote about that in his book is it's not about, you know, the government clamping down on whatever speech. It's that now people are going to basically censor themselves whenever they're going to have any opinion that they might think would rile people up or get people upset. And it's as if the Overton window for acceptable ideas is now reduced to this tiny 
tiny pendulum that's only controlled by, you know, the large uh, publishing houses and gatekeepers. I think that's why a lot of people are, are kind of driven to your work because you're, um, you're still using obviously many mainstream outlets to publish your work, but you're also using uh, things like Twitter, things like digital services to get your message out. Um, I know that you, you've been in the journalism game, uh, you know, it hasn't been that many years, so you, you haven't had to, to work through the, you know, the ink-stained old days where there, there would actually be the gatekeepers. But uh, what's it like working in, in sort of digital journalism in 2020? Well, we're in this interesting space right now in journalism where legacy institutions still have massive market share, right? So there's still the 4 million people that watch Tucker Carlson on Fox News, and there's still, you know, millions and millions of people that look at the New York Times every day. However, there's also this alternate path. I mean, Andrew Sullivan, who is far more famous a writer than I, was pushed out of New York Magazine for being insufficiently woke. Uh, and he switched to Substack, the email platform that I use, and had 70,000 subscribers within a week, right? So he has this own audience of his own that he's gonna be able to reach surpassing institutions, gatekeepers, and everyone. And I mean, this is, regardless of what you think of these people, we've also seen YouTubers and content creators like Dave Rubin or Candace Owens and um, setting your aside uh, about what they say, they've cultivated independent audiences of millions. Dave Rubin gets more views per podcast by far than most daytime cable news shows get, maybe by a factor of three or four, frankly. He gets millions of views and some of those shows are in the hundreds of thousands. So there is this new media out there uh, of podcasting and YouTube and streaming and social media and direct connections to people that we're seeing rise up. And eventually it could grow. I don't think legacy media will ever be non-existent, but its market share is shrinking under, under new, interesting and, and kind of competitive frontier of alternatives because people are not satisfied with that. And, and based on the way things are going, I can't blame them. Yeah, I think the big thing there is like, as you have that divide, it's become increasingly more difficult to figure out like what people actually think because they're now so separated. You're not going to see um, a conservative or, or libertarian voices kind of amplified in, in many major outlets. And so it's very hard to have that kind of national discussion. Um, on that note, when it comes to the election, Trump, Biden, I wanted to know what your take is. Obviously, it's still early, um, but what is your take on the choices that Americans have um, and, and kind of where do you see things going in the now shorter time frame we have between now and the election? Right. Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, I get this, this backlash from a lot of people, but I tell them all the time, my job is not to work to, uh, to help Republicans or, or Donald Trump or anyone because uh, people will respond to an article I wrote criticizing the GOP and they'll be like, how does this help us defeat the Democrats in November? And I'm like, that's not my concern. I'm a journalist and commentator. My job is to say the truth as I see it and highlight the facts, not to kind of play to a political outcome, regardless of what I may want to see. And honestly, I mean, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm just open about my biases because I'm an opinion writer, um, though I am a journalist. I, I, so I voted for Gary Johnson in 2016 um, as a protest vote between the two candidates. I don't, I don't think that I would um, be able to vote for either candidate this time around. Uh, Trump, I don't even know where to begin, but there are many reasons I couldn't vote for him, even though there's things about his administration I like, and I'll always 
say so. Um, and I always try to treat everyone fairly on the merits. Um, however, on the other hand, you have Joe Biden. People are like, oh, Trump is a threat to the Republic. You should just support Joe Biden. It should be a no brainer. Okay, well, Joe Biden literally supports a regulation that would outlaw my entire profession, right? He would ban freelance journalism <laughs> uh, by uh, embracing California's uh, section, uh, I forgot the name of the bill, AB6. It's AB5, right. um, worst, worst bill AB5. ever, ever that has right. come to the brain well, of a Joe legislator. Well, Joe Biden wants to make it on a national level, and that would literally make the work that I do illegal. So I'm not going to be voting for, for Uncle Joe and his apparent cognitive decline and socialist light agenda either. I, and I also am not going to vote third party for the Libertarian Party because I'm very frustrated with the candidate they chose with the path the party's taken. So I will probably just write in, write in a candidate or um, leave it blank, to be honest. Um, but either way, we are in for a crap show of a next administration. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, my, my quick follow-up question on that, which because it's always struck me as so weird. I'm, I'm wondering if, if this has struck you as well. For Biden, I don't understand why he's moving to the left and partnering more with Bernie when he could be very easily running as like the moderate Democrat to scoop up the never Trumpers, to scoop up folks who just don't buy into the full progressive agenda. Um, what's your take on that? Why, like, wh why do you think Biden is, he seems every day um, more progressive and the whole appeal of Biden to begin with was that he wasn't the, the woke progressive candidate. He was supposed to be the appeal to the Obama era and, and centrism. Um, so I'm just curious as to what your take is on that. Well, I think it's, it's a matter of who, who he has around him because Joe Biden is very old uh, and he is not quite as sharp, to put it kindly, as he once was. And so he has outsourced his campaign and he would outsource his presidency to kind of the, Demo the new Democrat establishment. But that new Democrat establishment skews left more left, skews more woke. Um, and just look at how they've allowed Twitter, right, this extreme bubble that they're in to dictate the 2020 Democrat primary, right? They were really embracing stuff that played well on Twitter, even if actual voters don't support it, right? Um, I'm, what comes to mind is uh, Castro, Julian Castro talking about abor abortions for transgender uh, women, which doesn't make any sense, right? But on Twitter, people were like, yes, Castro, we stand." Right, but that's the kind of discrepancy you have between the new Democrats that are very online and control the halls of power and some of these institutions and the actual electorate. So Joe's had to thread a needle there and he's threaded it uh, farther to the left than a lot of people expected, in part because these people surround him um, and they also threaten his, to not support him really, like the Bernie base could just not vote for him and he would be uh, out of luck if that was the case. So he's got a very delicate, delicate balancing act to play. Um, so there's really no easy answer for what he's supposed to do. And he's chosen to hew to the left and hope that the people in the middle will just be so dissatisfied with Trump, they'll vote for him anyway. No doubt. Brad, uh, one thing I wanted to ask is, apart from swamp politics, of which, unfortunately, you are mired, uh, but uh, one thing I wanted to ask is, you know, what are some of the other things that you're interested in that you're writing about 
and uh, maybe give uh, some of our listeners, again, your uh, sort of social media links and, and your sub stack so we can hear more about how we can follow you. Sure. So I'm, uh, when I'm not worrying about what's going on in the 2020 campaign or in Congress, I'm often trying to highlight um, interesting studies or research or economic issues affecting people that aren't at the forefront of the conversation. Uh, and so I do that a lot for my writing for fee.org, which people should check out. Uh, that's the Foundation for Economic Education, where I'm a fellow. Uh, and then everyone else can find all of my writing, including my and also my uh, really controversial food opinions and tank tweets at twitter.com slash Brad underscore Palumbo, P-O-L-U-M-B-O. And if they go there, they'll be able to find on my homepage a link to my newsletter, which is the weekly update of all of those controversies combined. Uh, so that's, that's where people can head to keep up with everything that's going on uh, with me and in Washington, D.C. All right. Thanks so much, Brad. Uh, thanks for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. We've been speaking with Brad Palumbo, who's a fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, fee.org, and also a senior contributor for Young Voices. Brad, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Lord, give me grace in dancing and we're back on Consumer Choice Radio, a great interview with Brad Lumbo. Uh, moving quite quickly into our second interview with Ashley Baker, a repeat guest on Consumer Choice Radio, talking all things antitrust and tech regulation. Uh, we'll get Jamie to roll that interview with Ashley Baker. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. We are very privileged to be speaking with Ashley Baker. Ashley Baker has been on this program before, so she's a friend of the show, uh, shall we say. She's director of public policy at the Committee for Justice, and much of her work, as you'll see on her Twitter or all over the internet space, is on the intersection of the courts, regulation, and technology, and she tweets at and Ashley says. Ashley, thanks so much for coming back to Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for having me. So uh, one thing that David and I were able to discuss last week uh, for our program was a little bit about the antitrust hearings. Uh, I wish we could have dedicated many hours to this. There are so many nuggets in there, so many things to, to discuss, to ridicule, uh, and to, to try to understand. Mm -hmm. You are someone who is uh, much more versed into the legalistic arguments around why these hearings are there in the first place and what's happening. Uh, if you could just give us a sense for all of our listeners what is this antitrust hearing about and what does antitrust have to do with Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google in the 21st century? Um, I mean, the general question of what congressional hearings are for, and at this point, no one really knows. Um, do they uh, resolve all the questions were obviously completely relevant, um, as even an outside observer could see. I'm being a bit sarcastic, um, sarcastic there. I, I think you know, they wanted to haul four CEOs out in front of the American public on TV and ask them a lot of questions and air their grievances, and a lot of them had nothing to do with antitrust. Um, it's, that's not to say there weren't a couple of um, legitimate questions in there, um, but there were very few and far between, and certainly the members did a lot more talking and um, 
then you know the CEOs really got a chance to some you know at one point during the hearing you saw particularly the Democratic side um, just kind of using up all of their own time to air their grievances and on the you know right of center they had some of the same complaints as the left but um, also some similar complaints and a lot of them were related to things such as content moderation and privacy and um, equality and workers rights and these issues that aren't directly tied to antitrust or to the um, to the purpose of the hearing. And there are also a lot of things, and this kind of is the case with any of these hearings involving CEOs of companies. The CEO is usually not the person that you really want to be asking these questions to anyway. You want someone, you know, who oversees compliance day to day, for example, for like privacy, if that's, you know, your hearing topic, or you need a market expert, you need someone who actually has expertise. It's not that their, you know, opinions aren't helpful to, or their, um, you know, their answers aren't helpful to you, but you know, when you also have very unhelpful questions and mostly most of them weren't even questions, it was kind of a spectacle, then, um, you know, it really was not a productive hearing. And if, you know, the point of this hearing was to go towards the House Judiciary Committee over the past um, year, they've opened up an investigation into these companies and they're looking at, you know, potentially, you know, anti-competitive or monopolistic practices, but really looking more so at how maybe our antitrust laws should be changed in order to address an era of big tech and whether or not our antitrust laws are suited for that. Um, and very little of what was in that hearing actually would be of any help whatsoever in answering those questions and putting together an important or, you know, conducting an investigation. I think it was increasingly clear that, um, you know, why have a hearing in the first place if Cicilline had already felt that they were all monopolies? Um, I, I think there was a conclusion before it began. Yeah, that makes sense. Reclaiming my time, by the way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, one thing I want to ask real quick uh, before I hand it over to David is uh, the idea that Apple has its own app store that they created and they open up to developers and then they charge them a commission to be on the store. And the idea that Amazon opens up its platform for third-party sellers, allows them to come on, they have to pay a certain fee. Why is this considered like super monopolistic behavior? Because this came up multiple times in the hearing. Is this against the law? I thought this was just like how markets worked. Maybe I'm wrong. What do you say? No, it's not against the law. I mean, what happened is, it, you know, sometimes also whenever things um you know, take place on the internet, suddenly it's treated differently. You walk into a CVS or to a um, Costco and you know, they have their own brands of products as well that they also market, you know, first and foremost to consumers. And you also have to think of you know, the other side. So this gets to a larger question that we don't really have time to get much into right now, but of the like multi-sided nature of these markets um, and how it's not, you know, just your traditional um, one-sided transaction, but you have also, on the other hand, the sellers do get a lot out of being, you know, for example, on the Apple platform. Um, they not only reach a wider audience, but also there are, um, you know, perks when it comes to, you know, having an app that's, you know, less buggy than other it otherwise would be. Um, there are a lot of technical um, technical upsides of, you know, having uh, one platform. And, you know, there, there's more than one, by the way. There's the Google Play Store. There are other operating systems. Microsoft has its on. Um, and, you know, as we can all see today, you know, Microsoft wasn't a huge monopoly just because they controlled the internet browser. They're not controlling the rest of the internet right now either. Yeah, and one thing that I've, I've noticed is that we, we kind of have this unholy alliance of the further left or progressive side of, of the Democratic Party with Trump style populists very consistently making the argument that these companies are too big and that they need to be broken up as a result of their size. 
What's your response to that argument? Does it hold any water um, or is it really just kind of silly grievances at this point? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it certainly is an unholy alliance. And it also goes against, it goes against a lot of economic and legal learning that has led us to this point in antitrust law. There, there's a lot of history that's being thrown away here. And there are also a lot of principles at stake here. Um, so, I mean, you know, particularly on the right of center, we believe, you know, that the law should be weaponized for purposes other than what that law should, is intended for, specifically in this case, antitrust. Um, and, and that's what we're seeing. And there's also, you know, on the right of center, not this presupposition that big is bad. Um, and that sort of um, presupposition is kind of what led us to, um, to develop the consumer welfare standard in the first place too. And, you know, early days of antitrust um, enforcement, it didn't really work very well as a starting uh, point when they said antitrust law, I, I think what the court said was it was to protect small dealers and worthy men, but that has nothing to do with, you know, price point or with how it affects the consumers. So it took nearly a century of economic and legal learning to arrive at where we are today. And there's a lot that's being thrown away. Yeah, I think um, if you could explain consumer welfare standard, and because that was brought up a couple of times, uh, obviously you, you've written about that in, in, in a letter that we will get to in a little bit. Um, but, but what did that mean in the context of the hearing? Because as far as I know, uh, a lot of these products are either free, things like Facebook, uh, or pretty much are just marketplaces for buying a lot of stuff uh, like, you know, Apple, Amazon, whatever. What is consumer welfare standard in this case? Right, that uh, raises a lot of interesting questions, but consumer welfare standard isn't necessarily just about price either. Um, and, and it's kind of, consumer welfare standard is more of this um, kind of broader goal of the antitrust system. Um, and, and the term itself is a little bit of a misnomer and there's a debate between whether or not it's, you know, total economic welfare or if it's welfare for the consumer, it, you know, arguably could be both, but, you know, for the purpose of today's discussion, um, it is, you know, how the consumer and the market benefits um, by certain behavior. And also it, it's this, you know, neutral underlying standard in which, you know, the law has developed around in order to have a goal of the law itself because antitrust law really didn't have much of uh, a goal before that other than, you know, whatever the for enforcers wanted it to be. Awesome. And, and on that, so when it comes to some of your work, um, on this. I know that you've been involved with um, the Alliance on Antitrust. Can you give our listeners a, a run through of what that what that group does and its purpose and what your role is with it? Sure. Um, so the Alliance of, on Antitrust is a coalition um, of nonprofits. It's, it's not a separate entity in and of itself. It's a group of like-minded organizations that my organization, the Committee for Justice, has started and the point of the Alliance on Antitrust is to reiterate a lot of these principles, particularly conservative principles. These are all conservative or right of center free market groups. And we're trying to reiterate to Congress these points that are being lost in the antitrust debate. Because right now, the antitrust debate, you're seeing, you know, all of these issues relating to content moderation and privacy and everything but antitrust, you know, filter over into it. And we're trying to um, kind of reiterate that it's this debate's lost its um, primary, it's lost sight of the primary goal of antitrust, and we're worried about the politicization of the law itself. Um, and these are all groups that want to stand up for the rule of law, which is a very conservative principle, and we think that's very much undermined um, when this is politicized. And we don't want to see, you know, we don't want to return back to the 60s and 70s of antitrust enforcement, where it's being used for all these socioeconomic purposes that have nothing to do 
with antitrust. So we're trying to reiterate really what's at stake in this debate and also provide some education on the history of antitrust law, um, educate the public, um, send letters to Congress as we have recently. Um, this launched last week, um, the first week of August, and um, we're off to a pretty strong start with about 15 different organizations and individuals, and we've grown by one or two every day, it seems, um, since then. So I think this is a common sentiment among people who um, there isn't really a very good forum for some of these organizations to express these ideas that um, it doesn't, is it already kind of contaminated, so to speak, with these other tech policy issues that just have nothing to do with antitrust. So we're trying to make it just about antitrust. So and, the, and the website is allianceonantitrust.org, by the way, David, I'll let you and, know. And I have a follow-up just specifically on talking to conservatives, because for me, I, for, for conservatives, I mean, I put them more on the populist side of politics, the ones who support intervention um, in this context. But do you find that there's a blind spot for many of those who are in favor of intervention, whether it's on censorship or antitrust or, or anything in terms of tech, um, maybe a blind spot in, in the realization that whatever power they enable government today under Trump is just going to be used by whomever they don't want to be president down the road. Um, I, I, I don't know if that has resonated in your conversations. You would know far better than us because you're actively engaging that side of the aisle. Uh, but do they not, is there just a giant blind spot? Or are they, are, are they naive to the fact that, that Joe Biden could be president in just a few months time and, and whatever powers you're, you're giving government ultimately fall under what could be a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic president? Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on about um, all that. I will point out that, you know, most conservatives aren't under the, you know, populist antitrust umbrella. Um, I, I know you probably have maybe a bit of that misconception because it's all, the debate's also dominated by those who are the loudest, and those happen to be the loudest right now in our that's actually what our coalition is for, is to give the you know more traditional conservative groups a voice on preserving some of these things. And we all realize that, yes, this would be a huge strategic blunder. I mean, like I just said, going back to the 60s and 70s, where it's, you know, used to enforce environmental law, equality, any, you know, a lot of these are kind of leftist agendas as well. And it's also, it's a strategic blunder in a way, I guess an imperfect analogy I've made recently is um, kind of like Harry Reid giving away the filibuster is a huge, um, problem for the Democrats down the road, um, this would be even worse than that. And, and that's considered kind of one of the more, um, you know, one of the bigger political um, blunders of the past couple of decades. And I, I think this would be absolutely catastrophic in the long run, because we've made a lot of progress on antitrust compared to where we were in, you know, the 60s and 70s. And if you look at other areas of the law, too, um, they've kind of, you know, ballooned out of control by the left driving litigation. And when it comes to, um, areas such as environmental law and other areas of tort law and product liability law. It's really driven by litigation from the left and you have the law ballooning into something that it wasn't. And with antitrust, we've actually been able to kind of roll it back into what its purpose originally was. Um, and just giving up those you know, decades of progress would be a huge mistake. Yeah, there's a write-up on uh, this alliance on antitrust.org uh, here on Axios. And uh, in one, they quote, uh, who do they quote here? Someone who's on the panel. And uh, Ken Buck, Representative Ken Buck, Republican on the antitrust panel, told Axios that he too thought the government should leave American companies alone until his panel spent a year investigating the platforms. Um, so he says in this quote that essentially he saw so much, quote, anti-competitive behavior and dominant positions in the marketplace 
Um, again, I think it's very hard for a lot of uh, our listeners to to conceive of this. I mean, this is not uh, like the oil monopolies of the late 1800s and early 1900s. You know, these are tech companies that have real competition and have to fight for their space on the internet. And at one point, Zuckerberg said, look, uh, if we don't fight for what we're doing, we'll be replaced by a number of groups like within a year, like it can happen, right? Absolutely. And this is the, a lot of this is the nature of competition. Of course, they're shielding themselves from competitors and that's absolutely not illegal. I mean, you know, the European system, for example, that's completely different in which um, their antitrust law, you know, does work against, um, you know, harm to other competitors here. It's about the consumers. And when you hear statements such as that, how often do you hear the consumers even mentioned? Um, and I would like to, you know, know a little bit more detail about what he meant by that about the year of an investigation. I guess we'll find out eventually if that yielded anything or if, like I said, they had a conclusion before the process started. Um, but it, this is really about the consumer and it's really hard to argue that um, the consumers are not better off today than they were years ago. Yeah, yeah, and that's one thing is whenever people are making these arguments that these companies have near monopolies, I just go, I, I flash back and our listeners can Google most of these headlines. Just Google the old headlines about MySpace. Um, many people who are listening will be like, wait, what the heck is MySpace? Um, but I'm old enough to know um, when you had your top friends and you had maybe had a couple music clips that you really liked. And that was like the bee's knees of social media. And everyone was freaking out that MySpace was just too big and that we maybe needed to, um, to break up MySpace because we couldn't envision a world where MySpace wasn't the dominant social media platform. And I think that lends to Zuckerberg's point is if they don't, keep innovating or keep changing their models or keep pushing to do different things or be more, um, more friendly in terms of their interface with consumers and their, their customers, depending on the platform, they're ultimately going to end up like MySpace. Um, are there other examples historically where you've seen kind of companies that we once thought or examples of, of anything in the tech space where we once thought they were going to basically dominate the market forever and then eventually they fell away or disappeared? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There are many of them in, any, in a lot of industries. It's kind of hard to think of some of them because they have disappeared, as you said. Um, you can actually look at a lot of interesting old headlines from like Ford's other publications. Um, what about breaking up Yahoo, for example, AOL's one. There are ones outside the tech industry, um, and GM was seen as you know a huge threat at one point, and then um, Toyota kind of built better model at another point. Um, so you see it in the auto industry. Um, you, you've seen this throughout the years in every you know major um, United States industry. I would note that all of these major industries are located in the U.S. for a reason. And uh, part of that is because of the flexibilities our antitrust laws have allowed, unlike, you know, the system in Europe. Yeah, you're definitely yeah. right there. Every single uh, six months, we can look forward towards a $1.3 or $1.5 billion fine that comes from the EU on American <laughs> tech companies. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I go back to um, in university, and Yael will remember me back from these days. I was the guy who held on to his BlackBerry phone for way too long. Um, but there was a time where BlackBerry dominated the, the mobile market, and people forever thought that they were just going to be a big player, and that was never going to change. And then through competition, a little bit different than some of the tech space and platform discussions we're having. But then, but, but again, the, the kind of principles hold true that if these companies don't keep innovating, they ultimately end up like, 
like yeah, we, we like we like to call David an economic nationalist. He was supporting Canada in this endeavor. Uh, that's why he held on so long <laughs> to his precious BlackBerry. Yeah, I have a great analogy. I guess it's pretty relevant to you guys. I know your um, president and director Fred actually met him um, during a change program. A number, I don't even want to say how many years ago, about 16 years ago, um, we used to talk via AIM. And, you know, without AIM, how would I ever get in touch with Fred now? Um, I've lost track of all of you guys. There's no replacement. Better send, a, better send a letter on the Pony Express. Uh, right. It's actually, it's, you know, it's so interesting that this is happening in the era of the pandemic in which all of these companies have proven incredibly essential. Um, just from, you know, from, from my own angle, I've been able to, communicate with many friends and my family back home whom I have not been able to see for months. Amazon packages, being able to ship things to our house, Apple devices, being able to stay connected and talk to friends, uh, Google, pretty much everything, <laughs> my brain. Um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's just so crazy to think that this is in the, the big moment in time where we come to criticize these companies and we want to slap this antitrust thing on them when we're in the middle of a pandemic where all of these things have proven so much value to consumers. And I think that's why it's very important to bring up what you said, Ashley, is like, wh where's the actual interest for the consumer here? Because I'm looking around and we're all pretty happy. Yeah. And that's what the real issue was, but it does go to show too, that antitrust and it has been the past too, it's been kind of a microcosm of other societal issues. Um, I know and Bork's antitrust paradox, for example, what he wrote the um, new uh, forward to it, I think it was in 93 or something, um, 15 years before, after it's previous version, he was kind of reflecting on that and um, how, you know, how what Nadler um, said during the Microsoft investigations about, um, you know, this being more than a wonky legal issue or, you know, basically that it's more than just the substance of antitrust. And then that's when things started to catch on with the antitrust fervor at the time. It does reflect um, kind of this societal um, impulse to go after these companies for reasons that aren't related to antitrust. And I actually want to ask one question on Nadler because um, he's, obviously like one of the worst uh, re you know representatives ever um, the worst is an understatement the yeah. worst is an understatement yeah what are the worst um by the way it's thanks to the fairness doctrine that we can say that on talk radio i have to bring that up on talk radio at least once a week that's the rule um one thing about him is he went after zuckerberg and uh, it was in the context of them buying instagram and uh, you know they pull these uh, email documents of how tr uh, zuckerberg is saying yeah we totally got to crush these guys you know we got to figure out how to own it and Nadler makes it seem like it's a slam dunk, whereas everyone else who's listening to this is just like, wow, they made a really smart decision. Uh, Facebook invested in this. They connected it with their technology, with their developers, and they made it pretty awesome. But every, you know, it seems like the Nadler uh, fans and those of that ilk who are interested in going against these companies see that as a win for their side. What does the law say with antitrust when it comes to something like uh, you know, a huge purchase of a thing like Instagram, it seems as if the law would not crack down on that. But again, maybe we're reading it wrong. It's hard to say. I mean, this is also, it goes back, this is really just a hearing tactic to these, you know, hot documents or whatever you want to call them in various contexts. I mean, you see these during like, you know, judicial confirmations, any other sort of, you know, major public hearing when you have, you know, some snippets of emails that are somewhat out of context, just enough to you know, lead the public believe one thing or another. And part of it, it sounded a little bit like Zuckerberg was actually kind of kidding. Um, and, you know, they do use this kind of like boyish, like almost mafia-like sort of like language when emailing back and forth, which doesn't really help the situation when, you know, you have a congressman going after them, reading that out loud on TV. 
Um, but no, I, I don't see anything that, you know, was illegal there. And I, I think you, you know, if you were to break those up, you would lose, you know, a lot of efficiencies, a lot of, a lot of benefits um, there that you have with, um, you know, having more resources when these things are, you know, put together. Yeah, I, I know that for the Consumer Choice Center uh, organization, there's too much power in Canada, so we're going to have to break it up. Uh, split David Clement yes. uh, up into multiple parts using the law, hopefully. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess my our, one of our last questions for you before we wrap up is just where do you see this going? What's your What are your thoughts on how this discussion is going to um, progress over, let's say, the next three, four months? And then what does this look like after the presidential election? So I mean, some of this is hard to say. There are a lot of moving pieces in this discussion. And there, as I've you know, reiterated, there are a lot of things that aren't related to antitrust. So it's hard to predict exactly. I mean, what the events are kind of more immediately on the um, horizon as you see, um, you know, Nadler's report, the House Judiciary Committee report, which I said, you probably already had a conclusion. It's, it's just like, you know, impeachment and the investigation bar, by the way, both of those um, were pointed out by Republicans as being um, of having a conclusion from the beginning. Um, so I, I think we'll pro that'll probably um, proved to be true with this as well. Um, so there should be a, a report coming out of that, um, as well as potentially some charges from the Department of Justice. We also have the state attorneys generals doing their own investigation um, of various practices. California as a separate state has joined in with their own investigation. And it's also a consumer issue in that all of these overlapping duplicative investigations are, lack, are you know, wasting a lot of resources. Um, in terms of the election, it's really hard to say because you, it's odd that, you know, you have two candidates right now who have similar views on this. Um, so how that, how that would work and how things would, you know, if, you know, let's say if um, Biden did, uh, was elected president, how things would happen in terms of the investigation with the transition from, you know, a new DOJ and FEC to the old one, um, whether or not things would be slowed down or much different, it's, Hard to say there, but um, I mean, I, I think this, you know, antitrust is continuing to be the core part of the debate, and you, it's been part of a larger trend over the past um, year when um, when Congress and regulators haven't been able to get much done um, on these other tech issues such as Section 230 and privacy. They have just seen antitrust as a convenient regulatory tool, and that's why now they're targeting it because of past failures. 106.7 FM here on the Big Talker Consumer Choice Radio. We've been speaking with Ashley Baker, Director of Public Policy at the Committee for Justice. You can follow her on Twitter at and Ashley says. Also go to the Alliance on Antitrust.org. Ashley, thanks so much for speaking with Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for having me. Of course.